Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Give us ears to hear your truth, and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw close to you. May we thirst for the water that your love brings us. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. You know what a mountaintop experience is, don't you? Just when, man, when you feel like you are in the very presence of the Lord. For Jesus and these three disciples, it was an opportunity to escape from the busyness of all the crowds and, and all of the people, get out of the daily routine. And throughout the Bible, we see the Lord God using mountaintops to declare His message, to speak to people. Think of uh, Mount Sinai. You know, the Lord spoke to Moses on top of the mountain. He didn't speak to him down in the valley. He said, no, come on up on top of this mountain. We see that. Even the, even the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus got kind of up on the hillside and, and spoke. In Luke chapter 9, the Lord invites Peter, James, and John to walk with him up to the top of a mountain. Once there, the men witness a stunning and mind-boggling transfigured Jesus. In today's message, Pastor David teaches us that throughout the Bible, the Lord has called many of His servants to the top of mountains to experience a particular closeness and communion with Him. God continues to grant His people mountaintop experiences to encourage us and sustain us when times aren't so beautiful and rosy. Now here's Pastor David with part one of today's message entitled, Mountaintop Experience. Last week, as we've been going through the gospel according to Luke, we were in chapter 9. We're still in chapter 9. But last week, we looked at a section of Scripture as Jesus was teaching uh, his disciples and some of those there that were following him what it meant to be a full-on believer in Jesus Christ. And according to Jesus Christ, that's the way that all believers are called to be. If you come and you say that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus expects, anticipates, he teaches that it be full on, that it be all that we are, are, are his. We're fully surrendered. It's not, he doesn't take part-time disciples. You do understand that, don't you? It's not just, uh, well, listen, I'll, I'll be your disciple on uh, all the weekends, uh, every other Sunday, uh, maybe every uh, fourth Wednesday, uh, whatever it might be. No, it is, uh, it is the full-time call and surrender of our life. That's what Jesus commanded. That's what he taught. That's what he showed us in every way. And now I say that, and at the same time, I also realize that there are different callings among different people and different literally levels of uh, uh, perhaps even surrender in lives. And how God uses one individual is perhaps totally different than how he's going to use another individual. Uh, all of this, uh, again, there's, there's no doubting that we see some used in a more powerful way than others. And it's not because of the particular uh, value of that person or even the talents or the giftings of that person. It's just the, the call of God, 
God, the direction of God. And what God's plan is for your life is going to be different than what God's plan is for your life. And what his direction is and his calling on your life is going to be different than your life. And again, it's not about you, but it's about the calling and the plan of God. You can see that all throughout Scripture that God will use certain individuals. And believe me, once you study them, once you get kind of the background of some of these guys, you realize they're not prizes, okay? Uh, it's not that he's gone through and said, this guy is, man, he is, he is a wonderful guy. He's a really powerful guy. I'm going to use, no, he actually kind of uses sometimes the cast off of ones. And Yet, what does the word say? He uses a, that clay vessel in order that the treasure inside of it might be the, the thing of great value. Even as we're looking this morning, we're going to be looking at an event with uh, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus all together. But I was thinking as I was preparing this, and this is kind of off the side of the message. I don't know, maybe the Lord just gave this to me to give to you this morning because some of you need to hear it. But these two brothers, these, this James and John, uh, the two brothers are the ones that are called the sons of Zebedee, but they're also called what? The sons of thunder. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're always kind of a, oh, we want to be on your side, Jesus, when you come you know, into your kingdom. Not just at your side. No, we want to be on your right and your left. We want exalted positions in your kingdom. And these were the kind of guys, they went and told their mommy, mommy, would you go ask Jesus if we could be on his right and his left? And so like a good Jewish mom, she went to Jesus and said, could my boys you know, be on your right and your left? That's the kind of guys these guys are. These are the guys that uh, wanted to call down, you know, God's judgment on people because they were baptizing and they weren't part of the disciples. Should we, you know, literally, you know, call down heaven or hellfire against them? And these are the kind of guys. And yet God uses these kind of people. Aren't you glad he does that? That qualifies you and me mostly to be able to be used by him. But even these two brothers, the, the differences that we see in these two guys. There's no doubt in my mind at all that, that, that James loved the Lord Jesus, was used by the Lord Jesus. We see him in the early chapters of Acts, uh, again, being used by the Lord. But we also find that it's James in the early chapters of Acts that gets martyred. He, he gets executed. And yet his brother John, he lives to a ripe old age. He lives on into his 90s. We look at the other uh, idea. Again, James is active witness to the Lord, but even before his martyrdom, he never writes a book. Uh, the book in your Bible, James, that's not him. That's actually the Lord's half-brother, James, another James. James never wrote a book, and yet his brother John wrote the gospel according to John. He wrote the epistles to the church, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote the book of Revelation. So you got one brother that's martyred and pretty quick, not, not a whole lot left, and yet the other one that lived to a ripe old age, a lot of writings, a lot of impact on the church in his life. So let me ask you this, which one of those was more obedient to the Lord? Which one of those do you think that the Lord used more effectively in his life? Which one of those do you think that the Lord was more pleased with? Well, if you've thought about that and you come to the answer of saying that, well, that they were both equally blessed and honored and used by the Lord, then I believe that you're absolutely correct. Because it's different callings in different places. And we look in lives even today and we see how God uses different individuals for different purposes and at different times. What he wants is 
for each of us to be willing vessels. Willing vessels that he can call upon us at a moment's notice, and not only are we willing, but we're usable at that time. You know, what a, what a horrible thing that is for the Lord to call upon us to be used for his kingdom. We say, hold on a second. I need to like repent of a whole lot of stuff. I need to get my spiritual life all back in order. I need to get this cleaned up and taken care. You know, and how much better it is to be walking in his presence. And then when he calls for us to be used, that we're not only willing, but we're able to be used. I see this in these guys' life. Now, take that for what it's worth. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you're, you're, you're thinking, man, you know, I'm of not much worth in the kingdom of God because I see these others and they're doing these things and these things and these things and I'm not doing a whole lot. What he desires is for you to be willing and faithful to him. Now we're going to look today at an event in the life of Jesus and these three disciples, as I said, Peter, James, and John. Uh, it's an event that's recorded in all three of the synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you realize that the Gospel according to John is just a little bit different pattern, different layout than the other three. We find that this event takes place uh, about a week or so after Jesus had explained to his disciples all that it meant to be a true disciple of his. It was at the end of his teachings about self-denial, that idea that if you're going to follow me, you need to be willing to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross daily. You need to come and follow me. It's after that teaching where he says, you know what, you need to be willing to lose your life in reference to this world in order that you might gain your life in the next. It's after that teaching where he says, you need to stay true to your confession of faith and not be ashamed of my name particularly when it gets tough. And Jesus kind of ends that teaching there in Luke chapter 9 with verse 27. He says these words, But I tell you truly that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And you might think, well, that he's referring there to when he comes back with his kingdom's glory. After all, he had just shared about uh, that, hey, don't be ashamed because the Son of Man is going to come uh, with all of his glory and his fathers and his holy angels. We see that right there, but I don't believe that that's what he's speaking about. Some think, well, maybe it's the fact that uh, all of his disciples that are there, except for Judas, are going to be there on that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down, fills them to overflowing, and, and uses them mightily and powerful, and maybe that's what he's speaking about. Well, maybe, perhaps, but I don't think that exactly is what he's speaking about. I think that what he's speaking about is this next event, this next event that's going to happen in about a week after these things. And again, we see this in all three of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, this that's called the transfiguration of Jesus. And I believe that what Jesus was sharing with his disciples at that point in time is that some of them are going to be able to see in a very visible way uh, this, this foretaste of the glory of the kingdom of God, while for whatever reason, some of the other disciples weren't going to be there. He only took Peter, James, and John. And, and again, I, I think about those things. I ponder those things whenever I read. Well, how come only those three? And we've talked about that. We've joked about that, that, you know, the, the ones you got to keep an eye on all the time because you know they'll mess up. Those are the ones that you want closer to you. Okay, you three, you stay with me because I, I don't dare leave you alone because you'll mess things up. I don't think that that's really and truly the reason. I believe for whatever reason, God was revealing to Peter, James, and John this, this, this special event, this, this 
Powerful, powerful event. Let's take a look at it this morning, beginning in verse 28, and I'm going to read all through this uh, section, so if you just follow along with me, if you would, please. Beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now, it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he, Jesus, took Peter, James, and John and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening and Behold, two men talking with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which was about to be accomplished at Israel. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Uh, not knowing what he said. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet. They told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. It's quite the experience. Jesus and his followers had just been in the area of Caesarea Philippi. It's up in the northeastern area of Israel. It's today, when you go up in that area, you're fairly close to the borders of Syria uh, to the east and Lebanon to the north. Uh, at the same time, uh, right in that same area is uh, Mount Harmon. Uh, Mount Hermon is the, the tallest mountain in all of Israel. It's the one mountain in Israel that gets a lot of snow. In fact, it gets enough snow that today they actually have a ski slope on Mount Hermon, the only ski slopes in all the nation of Israel. It was, it was right there uh, at that place near Caesarea Philippi is where Mount Hermon is. Now, Catholic tradition tells us that the transfiguration took place at Mount Tabor, now, Mount Tabor is quite a ways uh, south and to the west. It's south and west of the Sea of Galilee. It's not nearly as high, and there's, there's no doubt they could have got there because the event of the Transfiguration took place about a week after the teachings at Caesarea Philippi. But Mount Tabor, even at the time of Jesus, had a lot of people living around it, and because it wasn't a very high mountain, there were people actually that lived on the mountain, which is a lot different than Mount Harmon. No, no one lived on Mount Harmon. They lived on the base of it. And I believe really that uh, as Jesus sought to get away from the crowds, get away from the people to come and have this, this special time, that I, I, I believe that it was probably Mount Harmon. We, we, we see that it's... it's in the time of the ministry of Christ where the public tide is kind of turning against him, he had already just uh, 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 done some hard teachings. And remember, he had just recently asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And then he asked them, and who do you say that I am? I believe it's at this point, particularly for this event of, in Jesus' life, Jesus needed to get away from the people. He needed to focus once again on what the Father was about to say and do in his life. And whether they traveled all the way to the top of Mount Hermon or whether they just simply went to some of the higher slopes, we don't know. But what we do know is they, they had a true mountaintop experience. You know what a mountaintop experience is, don't you? Just when, man, when you feel like you are in the very presence of the Lord. For Jesus and these three disciples, it was an opportunity to escape from the busyness of all the crowds and, and all of the people, get out of the daily routine. And throughout the Bible, we see the Lord 
God using mountaintops to declare his message, to speak to people. Think of uh, Mount Sinai. You know, the Lord spoke to Moses on top of the mountain. He didn't speak to him down in the valley. He said, no, come on up on top of this mountain. We see that. Even the the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus got kind of up on the hillside and, and spoke. We see Mount Zion is another powerful mountaintop experience. We find mountaintops to be, I think, just a really special place to be alone with the Lord, especially for those of us that are desert dwellers, right? Uh, To be up in the mountains, it's, it's like totally different. It's refreshing. Mountaintop experience, wherever it might be in your life, we all need mountaintop experiences. Whether that's a physical mountaintop or rather that's a, a, just a prayer closet that you might have to get away from everything else. Maybe it's just a uh, locked bathroom door, you know. Mothers of preschoolers know what that's all about, you know. The, the only place you can get away is if you can lock the door. And then there's little hands that come under the door. <laughs> but finding a time away and alone with the Lord is necessary in every one of our lives. And it's at this place, it's at this time that the disciples are going to experience a a spiritual high in their life, like nothing they have ever experienced before and like nothing they will ever experience, second only maybe to Pentecost. And for whatever reason, Jesus chooses only Peter, James, and John to reveal that glory. Verse 29 tells us they went up the mountain to pray, and as he prayed, the, the appearance of Jesus, his face, was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. As Jesus began to pray, he, he entered into, I believe, entered, entered into the very presence of the Father. And in that personal time of communication, don't you wish we knew what those words were? You know, what he was praying and what he was saying? Just again, the, the, the depth of that communication. We, we get kind of a glimpse of that if you read John chapter 17. It's a, man, it's a, it's a whole chapter of a prayer of Jesus directly to the Father, but we don't know what these words were. I've heard some people pray, and when they, they pray, they, they literally bring heaven down. It's just that communication. It's just that heart that's open before the Lord, and you just love to be to hear that prayer and to, to be in that presence. Uh, not everybody does that, but, but some too. I, I can't even begin to imagine the intensity of this communication with Jesus and the Father at this point in time. And, and yeah, I know that Jesus always walked in obedience with the Father. I know that he always walked in communication and relationship with the Father. But this was something different. This was something much, much deeper. And we all have prayer levels, don't we? we? We have levels of depth of our prayers. Let's, let's just admit that before each other. If I'm at lunch and I'm praying for a ham sandwich, okay, that's a whole lot different than if I'm at your hospital room and we're praying for your healing, okay? It's just a, it's just a deeper prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the sandwich. Thank you for your provision. Amen, and I eat the sandwich. But we get a little bit deeper when it's a life and death situation. You know the same thing yourself. And we might have important things in our life. We might be praying, okay, about the next job or the next move that we have, and we're praying and we're seeking the Lord. But when we're praying for the salvation of a friend or a neighbor or a loved one, man, that's deep stuff. That's when we really get to the core of the matter. And I believe that this was that kind of a prayer. At this point in time in the history and in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus was turning toward Jerusalem. 
and he knew that he was heading right into the stronghold of the enemy. He knew that he would eventually be arrested and tried and convicted and executed. He understood that. He had already told the disciples about that. He understood that it was going to be hard for him, that that in his humanity, this was going to be a difficult task to do. But he also knew that his disciples were going to be overwhelmed. So I believe that he's praying not only for himself, but he's praying for his disciples. That's because that's the kind of heart that Jesus had. I believe that Jesus was praying with an intensity It was probably second only to the Garden of Gethsemane. We read about the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed so intensely that that, that blood like sweat began to drop from his brow. Just the passion of his prayer, very possibly, maybe there were just absolute times of silence while he was praying there up on the mountain. You know how that is sometimes when we pray and suddenly we kind of run out of words. We, We just don't know what to say. The Word tells us about those times that, uh, man, our, our mind and in the flesh, we, we, don't, we can't think of how or what to pray, and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us at that point in time. Passion of his prayer. And in the midst of the intensity of that focus, something began to happen that really can't be explained in human terms. The very physical appearance of Jesus began to be altered. They began to be transformed. His, his, his very presence tells us it, it began to glow, and whatever color that his robe was before, Mark tells us that now it became white and glistening. Uh, you need to understand, I don't believe that Jesus walked around with a white robe all the time, uh, you know, despite pictures and stuff that you, I believe that Jesus just kind of, he looked kind of normal, but there was something that's going on here that changed him. And all three of the gospel writers speak of it. Matthew tells us that his clothes became as white as light. Mark tells us his clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Ladies, it's like how your neighbor can get her white shirts done, you know, much more than what you can do. No, actually, it's much greater than that, much brighter. Just the intensity of it all. And as he continued to pray, the gospel writers tells us that Elijah and and Moses were sent by the Father to come and minister to him. And they too, they they were wrapped in this same kind of glory. And we know why they're there. Luke tells us that they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And some say that he was talking about the fact that he was going to die when he went to Jerusalem. And yet, actually, that word in the Greek, it's translated in the New King James and in the King James as decease. But actually, the word, the Greek word is exodus. And the meaning of that word is to departure, is going away, is departing out. Much more than just the sacrificial death, I believe that they were speaking about him um, to him about the whole thing, that yes, you will die, but yes, you will raise from the dead. Yes, you will ascend back to the Father. And you start thinking, well, why does he need encouragement in the midst of that? I mean, after all, he's God in human flesh. But let's not forget, he's also 100% human. I believe that in the midst of his humanity, that encouragement needed to be there. You remember Jesus through his life, through his ministry. There were times that he was thirsty. There was times that he was hungry. There was times that he was weary. There was times that he slept. There were times that he wept.
hope that today's edition of The Open Word has been a blessing to you. If you live in the Casa Grande, Arizona area, we want to invite you to join us for worship. The messages that you hear on The Open Word are produced from worship services at Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. Maybe the teaching you heard today is exactly what you're looking for in a church. Then please join us. We meet Saturday evenings and twice on Sunday morning, as well as throughout the week. For more information about when we meet for worship, including driving directions, log on to theopenword.com and then follow the link to the church website. Now here's Tracy with some more important information about how you can help support The Open Word. Radio programs like The Open Word are wonderful tools that God uses to advance His kingdom here on earth. And as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. Today's broadcast was professionally produced, and God has given us a vision to see The Open Word expand into other parts of the world. Would you prayerfully consider financially supporting The Open Word? Log on to TheOpenWord.com and simply click on the support option to help us continue to grow. Thanks, Tracy. From all of us here with the production team, we want to say thank you for tuning in, and may God richly bless you.